0: Welcome to another Adult Bible Study Guide, Exploring the Book of Job. Written by Clifford Goldstein. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Narrated by Byron Phillips and Lynette Newhart. Exploration 14. Some Lessons from Job. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seeing the end intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. James chapter 5 and verse 11, the New King James Version. We've come to the end of these explorations of Job. Though we might have covered much in the book, we must admit that there's still so much more to cover, so much more to learn. Of course, even in the secular world, everything we learn and discover simply leads to more things to learn and to discover. And if it's like that with atoms, stars, jellyfish, and math equations, how much more so with the Word of God?
1: We have no reason to doubt God's Word because we cannot understand the mysteries of His providence. In the natural world, we are constantly surrounded with wonders beyond our comprehension. Should we then be surprised to find in the spiritual world also mysteries that we cannot fathom? The difficulty lies solely in the weakness and narrowness of the human mind.
0: Ellen G. White wrote those words published in the book entitled Education, page 170. Yes, mysteries remain, especially in a book like Job, where many of life's most difficult questions are raised. Nevertheless, we will look at some lessons we can take away from this story that can help us, like Job, to be faithful to the Lord amid a world of troubles. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. What important truths are revealed in these texts? How can these truths help you as you seek to be a faithful follower of the Lord? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight, living our lives in a manner consistent with our confident belief in God's promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 18 So we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are visible are temporal, just brief and fleeting. But the things which are invisible are everlasting and imperishable. The immediate context of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 is eschatological, talking about the end times, when we are clothed in immortality, a great promise that we don't yet see fulfilled. That's a promise we have to take by faith and not by sight, because it hasn't come to pass yet. Likewise, the book of Job shows us that there's so much more to reality than what we can see. This should not, though, be so difficult a concept for people living in our day and age to grasp, not when science has revealed the existence of unseen forces all around us. A preacher stood before a church in a large city. He asked the congregation to be quiet. For a few seconds there was no sound. He then pulled out a radio and turned it on, running the dial across the channels. All sorts of sounds came out of the radio. Let me ask, the preacher said, where did these sounds come from? Did they originate in the radio itself? No, these sounds were in the air all around us. As radio waves, waves just as real as my voice is now. But the way we are wired, we don't have access to them. But the fact that we can't see or feel or hear them doesn't mean that they don't exist, right? What other real things that we can't see, such as radiation or gravity, exist around us? What spiritual lessons can you draw from the fact that these unseen forces not only exist, but can impact your life? As the book of Job revealed, none of the people involved really grasped what was going on. They believed in God and even had some understanding about God and his character and creative power. But outside the bare facts of reality that they could see, example, Job's calamity, they didn't have a clue as to what was happening behind the scenes. In the same way, might we not at times be as clueless as to the unseen realities around us? The book of Job, then, teaches us that we need to learn to live by faith. Realizing our weakness and just how little we really see and know. Evil Being One of the great questions that has challenged human thinking deals with evil. Though some philosophers and even religionists have denied the existence of evil, or think we should at least abandon the term, most people would disagree. Evil is real. It's a part of this world. Though we can argue over what is or is not evil, most of us, to paraphrase a U.S. Supreme Court justice in another context, know it when we see it. Evil is sometimes put into two broad classes, natural and moral. Natural evil is defined as the kind that arises from natural disasters, such as when earthquakes or floods or pestilences bring suffering. Moral evil results from deliberate actions of other human beings, such as murder or robbery. All sorts of theories, ancient and modern, attempt to account for the existence of evil. As Seventh-day Adventists, We believe that the Bible teaches that evil originated in the fall of a created being, Satan. The popular culture, aided by materialistic philosophical speculations, has denied the idea of Satan. But one can do so only by rejecting the clear testimony of Scripture, which depicts Satan as a real being out to do humans as much harm as possible. This is a truth especially revealed in the book of Job. Listen to Job chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 8. You have already heard these verses read from the Amplified Bible in Exploration 3. So I will read them again from the New Living Translation. As you listen, think about this question. How do these two chapters help you understand the role of Satan in the evil that's so prevalent in the world. There once was a man named Job, who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Job's First Test One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes. But Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing, with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up the sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one. Who escaped to tell you? While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Job's Second Test Job Chapter 2 One day, the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, Skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life. But reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. In Job's case, Satan was directly responsible for the evil both moral and natural, that fell upon this man. But what we see in the book of Job doesn't necessarily mean that every example of evil or suffering is directly related to demonic activity. The fact is, as with the characters in the book of Job, we just don't know all the reasons for the terrible things that happened. In fact, the name of Satan never even came up in the dialogues Regarding Job's misfortunes, the speakers blamed God. They blamed Job, but never Satan himself. Nevertheless, the book of Job should show us who is responsible in the end for the evil on the earth. What do the following eight texts tell you about the reality of Satan? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, in the presence of God. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you in great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time remaining. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10 Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written and forever remains written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only Matthew 13 and verse 39 the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels Luke chapter 8 and verse 12 those beside the road are the people who have heard then the devil comes and takes the message of god away from their hearts so that they will not believe in me as the Messiah and be saved. Luke chapter 13 and verse 16 And this woman, a daughter descendant of Abraham, who Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Luke chapter 22, verse 3 and 31 Then Satan entered Judas, the one called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, Peter, listen. Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you like grain. Acts chapter 5 and verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and secretly keep back for yourself some of the proceeds from the sale of the land? And 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 Be sober, well-balanced, and self-disciplined. Be alert and cautious at all times. That enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion fiercely hungry, seeking someone to devour. More important, what examples do you have of Satan's influence in your life? How can you be protected against him? Friends like these. All through the book of Job, the three and then four men who came to speak to Job did so with good motives. They had heard what had happened to him, and they came to mourn with him and to comfort him. Job chapter 2 and verse 11. However, after Job first started speaking, bemoaning the tragedies that befell him, they apparently felt it was more important for them to put Job in his place and set his theology straight than it was to encourage and uplift the spirits of their suffering friend. Time after time, they got it all wrong. But suppose they had got it all right. Suppose all these things came upon Job because he had deserved them. They might have been theologically correct, but so what? Did Job need correct theology? Or did he need something else entirely? Consider John chapter 8, verses 1-11. through 11. What did Jesus reveal that these men were greatly lacking? But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came back into the temple court, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began teaching them. Now the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand in the center of the court, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. So what do you say to do with her? What is your sentence? They said this to test him, hoping that they would have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and began writing on the ground with his finger. However, when they persisted in questioning him, he straightened up and said, He who is without any sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and started writing on the ground. They listened to his reply, and they began to go out one by one, starting with the oldest ones, until he was left alone with the woman standing there before him in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She answered, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, Sin no more. In this story, there is a major difference between the woman taken in adultery and her accusers on the one hand, and Job and his accusers on the other. The woman was guilty. Though she might have been less guilty of sin than those accusing her, there was never a question of her guilt, whatever the mitigating circumstances. In contrast, Job was not guilty at least in the sense of guilt that his accusers had claimed for him. But even if he had been guilty like this woman, what Job needed from these men was what this woman needed, and what all suffering people need. Grace and forgiveness.
1: In his act of pardoning this woman and encouraging her to live a better life, the character of Jesus shines forth in the beauty of perfect righteousness. While he does not palliate sin, nor lessen the sense of guilt, he seeks not to condemn, but to save. The world had for this erring woman only contempt and scorn, but Jesus speaks words of comfort and hope.
0: The writing of Ellen G. White in her classic book on the earthly life of Jesus Christ entitled The Desire of Ages, page 462. What the book of Job should teach us is that we need to give others what we would like were we in their shoes. There is surely a time and place for rebuke, for confrontation, but before we consider taking on that role, we need to remember humbly and meekly that we are sinners ourselves. How about you? Can you be more compassionate with those who are suffering, even suffering from their own wrong courses of action? As we all know, and some know too well, life is hard. Right at Eden, after the fall, we were given some hints of how hard it would be when the Lord let our first parents know what some of the results of their transgression would be. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, In pain you will give birth to children, yet your desire and longing will be for your husband, and he will rule with authority over you and be responsible for you. Then to Adam the Lord God said, Because you have listened attentively to the voice of your wife and have eaten fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, the ground is now under a curse because of you. In sorrow and toil you shall eat the fruit of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground, for from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve life-spring, life-giver, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made tunics of animal skins for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, knowing how to distinguish between good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life as well, and eat its fruit and live in this fallen sinful condition forever. Therefore the Lord God sent Adam away from the garden of Eden to till and cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So God drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he permanently stationed the cherubim and the sword with the flaming blade, which turned round and round in every direction to protect and guard the way entrance access to the tree of life. These were just hints, though. After all, if the only challenges we faced in life were thorns and thistles, human existence would be radically different from how it is today. We look around, and what do we see but suffering? Sickness, poverty, war, crime, depression, pollution, and injustice. The historian of antiquity, Herodotus, wrote about a culture in which people mourned, yes, mourned when a baby was born, because they knew the inevitable sorrow and suffering that the child would face were he or she to reach adulthood. Seems morbid, but who can refute the logic? In the book of Job, though, there is a message for us about the human condition. As we saw, Job could be deemed a symbol of all humanity, in that all of us suffer, often in ways that just don't seem fair, that don't seem appropriate to whatever sins we have all inevitably committed. It wasn't fair to Job, and it's not fair to you. And yet, in all of this, what the book of Job can say to you is that God is there, God knows, and God promises that it doesn't all have to be for nothing secular writers, atheistic writers, struggle to come to terms with the meaninglessness of a life that ends forever in death. They struggle and struggle for answers, and yet come up with nothing, because this life, in and of itself, offers nothing. There's an atheistic philosophy called nihilism, from a Latin word nihil, that means nothing, Nihilism teaches that our world and our lives in the world mean nothing. The book of Job, though, points us to a transcendent reality beyond the nihil that our mortal lives threaten us with. It points us to God and to a realm of existence from which we can draw hope. It tells us that all that happens to us does not happen in a vacuum, but that there is a God who knows all about what is happening, a God who promises to make it all right one day. Whatever grand questions the book of Job leaves unanswered, it doesn't leave us with nothing in our hands but the ashes of our lives. Consider these two verses. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19 By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground For from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Job chapter 2 and verse 8 And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself, and he sat down among the ashes' rubbish heaps. The book of Job leaves us with a hope of hopes, the hope of something beyond what's presented to our immediate senses. Here are two Bible texts which explicitly say that we have a great hope that transcends anything this world offers. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10. For he was waiting expectantly and confidently looking forward to the city which has foundations an eternal heavenly city whose architect and builder is God. And Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed like a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus and Job Bible students through the ages have sought to find parallels between the story of Job and the story of Jesus. And though Job is not exactly a type of Jesus, as were the animals in the sacrificial system, some parallels do exist. In these parallels, we can find another lesson from Job, that of what our salvation cost the Lord. What parallels do you hear? Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God with reverence, and abstained from and turned away from evil, because he honored God. 1 John 2, verse 1 My little children, believers, dear ones, I am writing you these things so that you will not sin and violate God's law. And if anyone sins, we have an Advocate, who will intercede for us with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the upright, the just one, who conforms to the Father's will in every way, purpose, thought, and action. James chapter 5 and verse 6 You have condemned and have put to death the righteous man. He offers you no resistance. And Acts chapter 3 and verse 14 But you disowned and denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for the pardon of a murderer to be granted to you. Now listen to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. What parallels exist in these verses between Jesus and Job? Then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had gone without food for forty days and forty nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus replied, It is written and forever remains written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, Jerusalem, and placed him on the pinnacle, highest point of the temple. And he said mockingly to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to serve, care for, protect, and watch over you. They will lift you up on their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written and forever remains written, You shall not test the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory, splendor, magnificence, and excellence of them. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written and forever remains written, You shall worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and ministered to him, bringing him food and serving him. More texts to consider. This time the question is, how do these texts parallel the experience of Job? Matthew chapter 26 Verses 60 and 61 Many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and testified. This man said, I am able to tear down the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Luke chapter 11, verses 15 and 16 But some of them said, He drives out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Satan, the ruler of the demons. Others, trying to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. And John chapter 18 and verse 30. They answered, If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you for judgment. Compare Job chapter 1 and verse 22 with Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. What parallel do you hear? Job chapter 1 and verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weaknesses and temptations, but one who has been tempted, knowing exactly how it feels to be human, in every respect as we are. Yet, Without committing any sin. Let's summarize all the references that we've heard in this section. These texts do reveal interesting parallels between the experiences of Job and Jesus. Job, of course, was not sinless, as was Jesus. Nevertheless, he was a faithful and righteous man whose life brought glory to the Father. Job was sorely tested by the devil. As was Jesus. All through the book of Job, Job was falsely accused. Jesus, too, faced false accusations. Finally, and perhaps most important, despite all that happened, Job stayed faithful to the Lord. Much more consequently for you, Jesus stayed faithful as well. Despite everything that happened to him, Jesus lived a sinless life one that perfectly embodied the character of God. Jesus was the express image of his God's person. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the New King James Version. And thus alone had the righteousness needed for salvation, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Romans chapter 3 Verse 22, as great as it all was, Job, his suffering and his faithfulness amid the suffering was a small and imperfect reflection of what Jesus, his Redeemer, would face in Job's behalf and in ours, when he will indeed come and stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job chapter 19 and verse 25. Let's continue exploring. Here are a few thoughts to ponder. Through the centuries, the book of Job has thrilled, enlightened, and challenged readers in Judaism, Christianity, and even Islam, which has its own variant of the biblical account. We say challenged because, as we have seen, in and of itself, the book leaves many questions unanswered. On one level, this shouldn't be so surprising. After all, from Genesis to Revelation, what book of the Bible doesn't leave questions unanswered? Even taken as a whole, the Bible doesn't answer every issue that it raises. If the topics it covers—the fall of humanity and the plan of salvation—are subjects that we will be studying throughout eternity, how could one finite book of it, even one inspired by the Lord, answer everything for us now? Listen to these two important references. The first reference is The Great Controversy, page 678.
1: It suits the policy of Satan that men should retain the forms of religion if but the spirit of vital godliness is lacking. After their rejection of the gospel, the Jews continued zealously to maintain their ancient rites they rigorously preserved their national exclusiveness while they themselves could not but admit that the presence of God was no longer manifest among them. The prophecy of Daniel pointed so unmistakably to the time of Messiah's coming and so directly foretold his death that they discouraged its study and finally the rabbis pronounced a curse on all who should attempt a computation of the time. In blindness and impenitence, the people of Israel during succeeding centuries have stood indifferent to the gracious offers of salvation, unmindful of the blessings of the gospel, a solemn and fearful warning of the danger of rejecting light from heaven. Wherever the cause exists, the same results will follow. He who deliberately stifles his convictions of duty because it interferes with his inclinations will finally lose the power to distinguish between truth and error. The understanding becomes darkened, the conscience callous, the heart hardened, and the soul is separated from God. Where the message of divine truth is spurned or slighted, there the church will be enshrouded in darkness, faith and love grow cold, and estrangement and dissension enter. Church members center their interests and energies in worldly pursuits, and sinners become hardened in their impenitence.
0: The second reference is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed, given by divine inspiration, and is profitable for instruction, for conviction of sin, for correction of error, and restoration to obedience for training in righteousness, learning to live in conformity to God's will, both publicly and privately, behaving honorably with personal integrity and moral courage. The book of Job, though, doesn't stand alone. It's part of a much greater picture revealed in the Word of God, and, as part of a grand spiritual and theological mosaic It presents us with a powerful message, one with universal appeal, at least for all the followers of God. And that message is faithfulness and adversity. Job is a living example of Jesus' own words, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 13 What believer in Jesus seeking to do right hasn't at times faced inexplicable wrong? What believer in Jesus, seeking to be faithful, hasn't faced challenges to faith? What believer in Jesus, seeking comfort, hasn't faced accusations instead? And yet, the book of Job presents us with an example of someone who, facing all this and more, maintained his faith and integrity. And as by faith and by grace we trust in the one who died on the cross for Job, and for us, the message to us is, Go and do likewise. Luke chapter 10 and verse 37 Here are a few questions to consider. Place yourself in the mind of a Jew who, knowing the book of Job, lived before the coming of jesus what questions do you think that person might have that we today living after jesus don't have that is how does the story of jesus and what he has done for you help you better understand the book of job when you get to meet job (laughs) what might be the first question you ask him and why What are some questions and issues that the book of Job touched on that weren't considered in these explorations? And lastly, what was the main spiritual concept that you got from these explorations of the book of Job? I'm Byron Phillips, and it's been my pleasure to walk with you through the explorations in the book of Job until we meet again live fully in his presence until he comes just beyond tomorrow
1: ambassador group dot o-r-g